I'm ready. Okay. Okay, we'll begin the meeting tonight at uh, 5.37. Okay. Well, hello, everyone. I hope everyone's doing well. Um, we have some interesting topics tonight, so I'm not going to say too much. I'm going to get right into the meeting. Brenda, can you scroll up, please, a little bit? And I think Brenda's going to do a roll call. roll call. Perfect. Thank you. Um, Loretta Mellon? Present. Richard Harvey, Jr.? Present. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Lucia Angel? Neha Banger? Present. B. Franks Walker will not join us tonight. Um, Eric Murphy will not join us tonight. Mark Smith? Here. Khalil Toki will not join us tonight. Ali Yesin? We have a quorum. Thank you, Brenda. Oops. Okay, um, let's uh, go right on into action item B. Um, this is the approval. Can I um, have somebody? <coughs> Excuse me. Can I have a motion to approve the minutes of January 11th, uh, along with adopting the resolution for the um, remote teleconferencing meeting? Um, I would see a motion to approve the minutes from our January public board meeting as well as adopt a resolution for um, remote teleconferencing meetings. And I, uh, member Hervey, second. Great. Now, Brenda, can you do a vote on that where chair members can say yes or no on whether or not they agree to approve the motion? Okay. Loria Mellon? Loria Mellon? Yes. Richard Harvey Jr.? Yes. Lucia Angel? Yes. Neha Banger? Yes. Mark Smith? Aye. That everyone? Um, yes. Okay, thank you, Brenda. Okay, the motion passes. Thank you. Scroll up a little bit. Thank you very much. Okay, um, our medical director, Damon, has um, item C. Going to give us a report. Well, here's Damon. Evening, everyone. Um, I'll just be brief today. Can everyone hear me okay? Yes. I'm in Catherine's office, so yeah. <laughs> I'm getting used, to, getting used to my setup here. Um, so as you all know, the, uh, the strategic, I just have a few, uh, a few different uh, announcements. So first, the strategic plan is complete. Um, 
Thanks so much again for approving that last, uh, last meeting. And uh, we're now beginning to um, take the plan to different venues to um, help raise awareness about it. Beginning with our Board of Trustees meeting, um, the Alameda Health System Board of Trustees meeting on March 9th. So I've already asked um, our chair, Loretta, to join um, in that meeting. And I uh, was hoping that our vice chair as well could join me in a presentation and discussion with the Board of Trustees about the um, strategic plan then. And just wanted to let um, the rest of the board members know that it would be fantastic to have anyone who wants to join that meeting. We'll send out more specific information. Um, also join us and feel free to join in the, the presentation or discussion. Um, at that venue, there's a bunch of other places where I definitely like to raise awareness about the plan and get some support for it and figure out if we need to make adjustments to it to work with partners, um, including the Healthcare for the Homeless Commission, our Health Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Initiative, um, and maybe some other internal venues at, at um, Alameda Health System. And so it would be great in any or all of those venues to have um, members of the co-applicant board co-presenting and, and part of these discussions to make sure that um, your voice is really integral into how we implement uh, this plan across our system. Um, so if you're interested at all, just send me or Heather an email, say I'm interested in being part of, you know, these conversations and presentations, and we'll um, try to work with you as, you know, individual um, co-applicant board members to figure out where people can uh, can can slot in and, and join us. Um, so any, any questions about that? Okay. I'm gonna. I have a couple more update items um, before the next agenda item. Um, so uh, I just wanted to give an update on the the um, situation with uh, COVID among people experiencing homelessness, um, which is definitely in a much better place than at the last meeting. So I think at the last meeting we were very close to um, being completely at capacity in the isolation and quarantine um, facilities and um, you know, pretty overwhelmed with the number of outbreak investigations. And we're at a place where um, you know, the whole idea of isolation and quarantine, the, you know, the virus was spreading so fast that we were really unable to keep people separated fast enough to, to even slow the spread of the virus. Um, but I think as this happened you know, across the community, um, the case numbers are declining. We're, um, we now have a, a lot more capacity than we did um, a month ago in the isolation and quarantine um, facilities. And the, you know, the, the volume of um, outbreaks has definitely you know, returned to something that's more, more at a manageable level. Um, I think the thing on the horizon um, that uh, I'm starting to think about uh, along with uh, some of the folks in the county and Cardia Health, which manages the um, the, both the isolation and quarantine facilities and the safer ground facilities is um, some of those facilities are still slated to close um, at the end of this fiscal year. Um, and we're not really sure, you know, what the plan is either for, you know, new facilities to open, to keep those facilities open, or, or to figure out, you know, how we're going to transition people to other living situations. Um, so I think that's become something that's more pressing and that we're starting to have some conversations about. Um, the, the other item I just wanted to give a quick update on um, is that the homeless count was moved from January
January to February. So Alameda Health System will be participating in the Alameda County Homeless Count, which hasn't happened since 2019. Um, so this will be um, a long overdue count, I think, at a time where we, we you know, um, have other reason to believe that there's been a lot of increase in the numbers of people experiencing homelessness in our community. And so it's just a really important um, effort to try to quantify that, try to figure out, you know, what parts of our community are experiencing that, also try to characterize the community of people experiencing homelessness in terms of, in terms of health needs as well. Um, so we're really excited to participate in that, and hopefully um, some of that preliminary data will be back to us, um, you know, before too long um, to, to look over and discuss and figure out how it impacts our strategy. Um, and that, that's the, those are the three update items I wanted to give. Happy to take any questions that anyone has. Damon, uh, is the um, moratorium for evictions through June? Also, do you know? I don't actually know the answer to that. It's it's uh, operating differently at different levels of government, so I can get back to you on uh, that. Okay. I was um, just wondering if they tied it to the fiscal year, you know? It's it's tied, I believe, in Alameda County to the state of emergency. Okay. Um, but um, but there are, like I said, there are different moratoria at different levels of government, including citywide protections that are different from countywide protections that are different from right. statewide protections. So, I can I can see if I can find a good summary of that um, from you know one of our maybe legal aid partners and, and see if I can share that out with the co-applicant board. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. All right. If if no other questions, I'm really excited it, with uh, Madam Chair's permission to move on to item D. And introduce one of my colleagues. Yeah, so we have with us today um, Mona Shulal, who is, um, I was thinking about it, he's probably the physician in our system that, you know, for any period of any given period of time, takes care of more people experiencing homelessness than any other physician in our system. Because he works both in the inpatient setting, seeing people in the hospital, and he works in the clinic setting. And the um, a, both in the primary care clinic and um, and in uh, the bridge clinic, where, as you all know, we have a, a much higher percentage of people experiencing homelessness than we do in any of our other um, clinic settings. He also has done um, some great work with the home visiting program at the Safer Ground program and the, and the isolation and quarantine facilities. Um, and um, he is expecting soon, so I wanted to. His family's <laughs> expecting soon, so I wanted to try to get him to this meeting. Um, before that happened. So I'm, um, I'm really um, just excited to have him here. Monish, I'll let you maybe say a few words about yourself and your work. And then my hope was just, um, you know, to, um, for you to be able to answer some questions that, um, that the Coopican board members have about what it's like caring for people experiencing homelessness in our system. Sure. Thank, thanks so much for having me. I'm really um, happy to be here. Um, yeah, so as Damon mentioned, my name is Mona Shulal. I, um, I work in the Department of Medicine here at Alameda Health System and definitely um, have a lot of hats and work in, uh, spend a lot of time in the Bridge Clinic, which um, definitely sees a very large number of patients uh, who are experiencing homelessness as well as, um, of course, uh, experiencing, you know, substance use disorders and, and uh, mental illness. 
and I provide primary care services in our ambulatory adult medicine clinic um, at Highland and work in the hospital and uh, have, have been a part of the uh, home visit program for our internal medicine residency where we've had a few opportunities to visit some of the uh, safer ground sites um, like uh, Oak Days um, in particular. So partnering with them has been a really rewarding experience, just kind of seeing the spectrum of um, places where our uh, folks in the community can engage with, with their care, particularly who are experiencing homelessness. Um, but I'm, I'm really happy to answer any questions or, or um, provide any other information. success rate for um, people out on the street in your experience um, that connects up with our primary care clinic? Yes, great question. I would say the, the primary care clinic, like the one that's embedded within the ambulatory structure uh, at Alameda Health System, particularly at Highland, where I've, uh, I've experienced, I would mm -hmm. say that um, there's a lot of I, my, my, my experience has been that I think there's a lot of room for improvement be, um, because folks who are experiencing homelessness, as everyone knows, they, they have so many barriers to engaging in care through the traditional care models. Mm -hmm. um, and for example, you know, very traditional primary care model is that patients have um, appointments, times, and if they're late for those appointments, they might not be able yeah. to get seen and then they have to reschedule or they need a working telephone to answer uh, calls that are maybe like scheduled or they need to be able, they need to be reachable and they need to have the active health insurance and um, everything kind of needs to be organized for them. And um, the, I think the models that are also within AHS that are like really trying to lower the barriers have done such a great job of being able to connect with people like mobile health, um, like the bridge clinic, um, places that kind of bring the care to the patient in a, a little bit more of a patient-centered way that doesn't focus so much on some of the traditional structures mm -hmm. that I think can pose um, challenges for people. Um, mm -hmm. that yeah, it does. Has, is there anything in addition that our mobile health van can do to maybe help simplify uh, the health system there? I, I mean, Damon can speak to this more than I, I can, but I would love to see just growth of the mobile health program. I, I feel like so mm -hmm. much, um, so many patients that uh, that are kind of that are the health system is responsible for, but we have not been successful in engaging with. I think would it would be such a great opportunity to be able to kind of bring the care to them um, in the like kind of really more embedded in the community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are uh, some of the services that uh, people could benefit from being connected to when they come to see you um, or some of the services that get requested the most in terms of connecting them for you know, a whole person approach from a whole person approach perspective? Yeah, I, I, I mean, by far and away, I would say it's, it's housing. Uh, I think that there's so clearly a... Uh, housing crisis in, in our area and um, it, it's such a challenge I think when folks are you know they're really their primary need or their primary concern is having a safe place to sleep um, the night that we see them and um, sometimes we don't have very good uh, solutions 
for them in that moment. And it's really tough because um, we're, I mean, people who are engaging in the healthcare system that's kind of designed to meet medical needs, but their needs are much more um, kind of fundamental, uh, like housing. And so I think that uh, that's that's definitely one of the most common things. I think that probably another very common one is um, mental health support, which is an area of of growth I know for uh, for our health system for the county, but I think is you know getting better, and I, I do see a lot of successful um, engagement with with mental health services um, with some support. Thank you. Um, hi. Um, Go ahead, Mark. Um, I didn't mean to step on your toes. Oh, no, that's okay. Okay. I, um, I I actually have a couple questions. Um, the first one's going to sound very strange, but it, it came to me in a sort of dream to ask this question because um, I've never heard anyone talk about it, and I'm not sure how prevalent it is. But uh, just a little background. There there are groups, and I, and I can't tell you who they whom they represent or what their actual motives are, but there are there are people. Uh, who uh, make it their make it their business to uh, to sign up homeless people for what was back then called the Obama phone, and yeah. what what would happen is they they would give free phones, uh, mobile phones, to homeless people, um, but of course um, the homeless people have nothing else. Uh, they have no place to live or anything. They don't have any money in their pockets, but they could get a free phone and a free phone number to go with it. And um, one of the things I, uh, for some reason, I came to mind the other day, I'm just wondering, have you ever had any experience whereby there are homeless people who have cell phones who prefer uh, to do actual telehealth as opposed to actually coming in to uh, – a uh, uh, facility, and have you encountered that? And um, if so, is, do you feel the demand is great enough that there ought to be a designated person or persons to actually um, answer questions for homeless people who, um, without the cell phone, actually would not uh, be seen? That's my yeah. first question. I think that's that's a fantastic question, and. Um, Short answer is yes, absolutely. So I, I definitely care for uh, lots of patients who are experiencing homelessness, who are like actually unsheltered, you know, living, um, uh, you know, on the, the street, so to speak. And they do have a cell phone and a phone number. And maybe their cell phone number changes or the cell phone changes every few weeks um, because they're, you know, all of their possessions get stolen or taken, which, you know, unfortunately happens all too mm-hmm. commonly. But um they have a phone number and they actually use that pretty um, successfully to engage in care with certain um, systems. So, for example, in the Bridge Clinic, um, I feel really proud of the fact that our substance use navigator team has, for many years now, has had a phone number that's um, kind of our universal point of entry. It's a cell phone um, that is listed on all of our Narcan kits. It's on all of our flyers and, and posters and it's kind of this universal point of entry that is reachable by text or call. And text is 
far and away more successful than phone call for the most part. And we will be texting with a lot of patients who are, for example, they need a refill of a very critical medication. They'll text about it or we'll text them when they miss an appointment and say, hey, we missed you yesterday, wanted to check in. And like they're able to kind of communicate with us and reconnect. Um, So in that way, I think that cell phones can be critical for patients, even if they don't have housing, uh, which seems like, a you know, um, I I think both are so important, but... um, cell phones can be really, really valuable um, uh, as kind of a, an entryway. For example, a lot of folks, when they're trying to get, they're trying to connect with housing resources through traditional means, almost always it involves calling uh, somebody, right? Like calling um, calling a, a resource. And it's, uh, it's, it's kind of, um, it, there's something about it that's almost uh, painfully funny to me when like, we have resources that we offer patients who are experiencing homelessness who don't have a phone and we tell them to call a phone number or we try to call them after their appointment ends. And that's just not a successful way to, to you know, support someone if they don't have a phone. Um, so anyway, to answer your question, I, I think cell phones can be extremely valuable to people experiencing homelessness. And um, I, I think the caveat I would say is that Probably the majority of people I meet are experiencing homelessness. They're not very their their phone contact is not as reliable as that in person mm-hmm. contact. So having that drop in open access kind of model, whether it's mobile health, whether it's something like the Bridge Clinic um, or primary care, I, I think that's really really um, important. Okay, um, my and my second question is, um, what what do you believe that the clinic uh, is lacking um, that you think needs attention or something that we uh, we as a body can possibly um, aid um, aid your clinic in making uh, things a, a lot easier for you to operate? Yeah, th- thank you for asking that. I, I mean, I feel incredibly privileged to have the support of this board and Damon and his team in the work that we're doing. And I think the health system um, is also really ramping up their support of our um, uh, of what we're, our mission um, of caring for folks um, in the bridge clinic particularly who use drugs and, and uh, many of whom are experiencing homelessness um, I think that you know probably just continuation of that support and then it would be I would be interested to see opportunities for innovation where we can bring uh, kind of a broader service line into a model like the bridge clinic, like primary care into the bridge clinic, for example, or vice versa, bringing something like addiction care services into mobile health um, or expanding substance use disorder treatment um, in the community, the way that mobile health is providing primary care primarily in the community. So um, if there are ways that uh, we can have the board support to kind of in, like look into those those models for growth and, and scale um, scaling up. Um, those are some exciting future directions that I'm, I've been thinking about and I've talked with Damon about. Mm-hmm. Thank you. My other question was um, on your uh, Narcam kit. Do you, how do you get those to the public? Yeah, so we have a really robust Narcan distribution program. It's in the intranasal naloxone, um, mm-hmm. right. and uh, it's run by Josh Lovetig primarily, I believe. And um, we distribute to key community partners, so basically just like 
hand deliveries or like getting it out there after we put our labels on it. So the bridge clinic labels, we also have the national suicide hotline on there. And um, so we distribute, for example, to Oakland uh, PD, we distribute to um, different uh, like um, HEPAC uh, pretty regularly. And um, we distributed a lot within the bridge clinic itself. Um, other kind of community partners like uh, Cherry Hill Detox and Sobering Center, um, other acute care facilities, you know, like John George Psychiatric. Um, so we just kind of like, we have distribution networks, I suppose, um, that help it get out there. And then the clinic itself is very high volume. We see about a thousand patients a month. So that's a lot of Narcan that we're distributing. Wow. That is. Um, to, I'm curious because um, I just got back from New York and I was uh, looking at their program. I was pretty amazed at what they pass out there on the street. They pass out uh, the Narcam and uh, some other stuff too, but the thing that really impressed me was testing strips for fentanyl. So they test, they actually test the drug before they ingest it to see if it has fentanyl in it. And I don't, do we do that? Yeah, we do have fentanyl test strips and that's, oh, uh, awesome. it's, it's so great. I, I agree, it's really awesome. this um, this awesome innovation that, that, that has come about in harm reduction um, services. So like, we have a ton of that that we give out and we instruct patients on how to be able to test their supply or their urine. And mm -hmm. um, it, it's really remarkable to, to meet people who are just like, we're not expecting to have fentanyl um, contaminated in their drugs that they're using. Um, and they do. <laughs> oh yeah. And, and how much yeah, that's everything that's, that, that's in our community right now, it's just really flooding yeah. the bay. Um, scary stuff. It is um, very scary. And if, if they have, um, like, when you're addressing the mental needs of um, some of these homeless people, do they have access to group therapy within the bridge clinic, or um, where do you refer them? Yeah, so we, we're really fortunate to have um, an intensive outpatient program right down the hall from us that's really kind of partnered with us. They're called the Substance Use Disorder Treatment Program, but they're under the umbrella of the bridge program, I would say. And um, they have they have peer support groups that are five days a week um, and a ton of counseling, therapy services, social work services. Um, that's through the, uh, through like the, um, the county ODS system, which is right. kind of, yeah. Well, I was at um, San Leandro Hospital couple months ago waiting to be seen and uh, one of the intake nurses was dealing with a patient who was homeless and he was also a substance abuse um, user and um, after she got all his information she offered the bridge clinic to him and I was like oh that's so awesome you know and she asked me have you heard about it we can hook you up with it I thought that is just so wonderful you know so it's out there you know I love to hear that jobs. It's wonderful yeah that's yeah, great. So exciting. I, this is Mark again. I have a follow-up question yeah. um, uh, about the Narcan. I'm just wondering, um, have, have you run into a situation whereby uh, maybe some of your colleagues, uh, without naming names, of course, uh, colleagues who are resistant uh, to the distribution of, of, of Narcan for the same uh, for a similar argument against dis uh, distributing uh, clean needles, for instance, as you know, in the past, uh, there's been a lot of resistance by the community at large 
with the idea of, uh, of needle exchange because they say that by doing so, it, uh, uh, irrespective of what lives it may save, that it actually promotes uh, continued drug use. Uh, and some people, uh, and even some, uh, and some people of medicine, uh, actual doctors, uh, who also believe the same thing, that by promoting something such as Narcan uh, and putting it in the hands of people who are addicts, that, in, uh, that um, it actually has the opposite intended effect uh, by making it almost uh, permissible for people to continue their drug use. Uh, uh, have you run into that kind of resistance um, um, in your setting? And if so, uh, how do you think we can address it or, it, or, if, or is it even an issue? Yeah, I think what you're getting at is this, this stigma around harm reduction. And this is, uh, it's such a classic um, kind of counter argument or like thought that comes up around harm reduction of any type, which is aren't you enabling the behavior um, that you're trying to reduce the harms from? Um, and I feel really lucky uh, that for, for the most part in, in Alameda County, I think that we're, we're really, um, we've really come a long way where I have not met uh, personally any physicians who feel that Narcan, like who who kind of endorsed that uh, very um, kind of uh, old, very traditional view of, uh, of what harm reduction, um, the harms of harm reduction, which is, uh, of course, not supported at all by the, by the evidence. It's very clear that harm reduction uh, approaches like Narcan, like uh, syringe exchanges and so forth, reduce harms, that they benefit people, that they um, support engagement into care, that they save lives. Um, and, but there are definitely places in, I would say places in the country that are really still uh, years behind in, in uh, learning, um, culturally kind of growing in, into what uh, harm reduction practices. Um, so I, I haven't, uh, I, I'm thankful that, you know, a lot of that work has been done by predecessors like the people before me. Um, in in breaking down that stigma around that over the last probably five to ten years, um, and so uh, I have not met anyone who's not who's anti Narcan. I think there's like the there's a, the safety aspect of Narcan is really big. I think in medical training right now because of the opioid epidemic, um, so I think that's helped in some in some respects. But in, to answer your question about what can be done, I think. It's it's reducing stigma in general that people who use drugs that you know that it's not a moral failing that it's a it's a chronic disease that it's uh, not a choice that people are um, like that people when they relapse or return to using a drug that they're not doing something that's morally wrong and that that it's worthwhile to help and uh, help reduce harm from use and um, help support people wherever they're at. Thank you. I heard today, just before our meeting, um, that they opened up a new clinic in Tenderloin in the city. And um, I don't know if you heard the same problem also. The people in the area are um, very upset because there's a group of mothers who have children who are addicted, and they're very upset that the clinic is allowing um, them to use 
actually inject their drugs or whatever, you know, in, in the building. And um, the only re- the doctor responded, he said, you know, we make sure that they're clean. They're going to do it anyway, you know, if it's outside our door or in our bathroom. So if we can give them something clean and uh, have them test or whatever, you know, it's, it's worth doing it and allowing it. But again, it's really hard to get people to agree with that. You know, people have a big stigma about needles and using drugs like that. It's, it's sad. No, it's, it's so true. Um, I, I think that I can understand, like, I pro- I've had those same beliefs myself before I kind of learned mm-hmm. all of this. And it's the, in- the, 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 like, the kind of intuitive thing is, oh, yeah, you don't want to promote the substance use. You want to kind of just eliminate it. Like, that's, that's how you get rid of it. But yeah. when, um, when you recognize that this is not something that is going to go away, exactly like you said, then um, it's about helping people um, do things safely when you kind of accept that it's not, it's out of our control sometimes to just like, you can't just tell someone to stop mm-hmm. using something when they have a, a, an addiction. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, it's like uh, safe, safe use sites, safe injection sites, mm-hmm. like they promote engagement into treatment and yeah. um, it's an opportunity to really help. And so I think there's common goals there between people who disagree on this, but it's just kind of, yeah really the stigma and culture change, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I was wondering if you could just say a few words about the days in and the home visiting work that you do there, because I think that's really interesting and something we haven't touched on yet. Yeah, yeah. It, it was, it, it happened kind of spontaneously, which I, uh, was really neat. So, um, so in my primary care clinic, I have a few patients, uh, you know, several, many patients who are, um, at various times have experienced homelessness. And um, uh, over the course of the pandemic, when Project Room Key was really ramping up and there were all of these amazing opportunities to get folks housing, several of my patients ended up um, residing at Oak Days. And Oak Days has been amazing because they have a, an entire staff there that's very focused on supporting the, the residents. and. That includes uh, the nursing staff and, and the medical director there, um, and they started communicating with me more and more about like patient care and um, also about patients with substance use disorders. And in the Bridge Clinic, we ended up meeting more and more patients who were residing at Oak Days or you know neighboring uh, room key sites um, that were kind of coming in and out of care, and so. Kind of at the, in parallel, I, the home visit program was um, we had to kind of uh, modify it due to COVID. So it was virtual for uh, about a, a year. I think 2020 we couldn't we didn't end up actually going out. But then last year we were able to um, actually you know we were given permission to take the residents back out into the community, and um, we found some amazing. Um, opportunity in going to Oak Days. So I, I brought a group of residents with me to Oak Days mm-hmm. and met with the medical staff who I'd gotten to know through patient care from some of the patients on my panel. And we got to just kind of knock on doors and meet people. And the mobile van was there too. So we got to kind of work with them as well. And the thing that really struck me about going to Oak Days is just seeing, um, meeting all of these folks who like we met folks who uh, 
would not like, had, hadn't seen any type of um, doctor in, in uh, years really, or had very very little engagement in medical care. One person is just still kind of stands out to me is this um, woman who had um, really severe rheumatoid arthritis that was totally untreated for a long time to the point that it had kind of eaten away, really degenerated her the joints in her hands and her body, and she was essentially bedbound due to the severity of her rheumatoid arthritis. And she had opioid use disorder and methamphetamine use disorder um, using heroin and, and meth. And her partner uh, also had multiple substance use disorders, and her partner was HIV positive. And the patient, um, or you know, the, the woman I'm, I'm referring to, she was not uh, on you know, pre-exposure prophylaxis against HIV, and um, they just had no medical care. And we got to meet them because the OK staff was like, hey, this is a, um, you know, a couple that I think you guys should connect with. And so we got to meet them and just kind of try to start uh, start picking away at some of the tremendous complexities of, of their needs and um, offering, for example, buprenorphine, offering them Suboxone and, and trying to get them reconnected with some of their medical care. Um, and uh, it was really kind of, um, it made me feel like there's just so much need that uh, I wish that I could, I feel like you could have a, a full-time um, physician there, you know, 40 plus hours a week, just caring for the patients at Oak Days, um, which is, you know, like a, an entire, um, it's almost like its own facility. So anyway, it, it's, it was really amazing to see some of the um, opportunity to connect with people there and how much it meant for some of these folks just to be able to talk with someone, like someone actually knocking on their door and meeting them there and going through their pill bottles with them and helping them figure out what they need to take and what they don't. And there was a lot of um, appreciation for that. And then being able to kind of work with the Oak Days team, I've been really just impressed at how um, how high well functioning that the Oak Days team is and in delivering this care from all these other sites. So since some of those visits, for example, I've uh, I haven't been able to visit a lot because I'm, I, the home visit program is not like every week or anything. But the Oak Days team still communicates with me really regularly, and I'm able to kind of help provide some of that remote care to them. Like they called me about a patient the other day who needed a referral or like certain eye drops and an ophthalmology referral, an eye specialist right. referral. And um, that, you know, I didn't need to schedule that person in the primary care clinic because that was never going to happen. So I just like put in the orders, made it happen, sent the meds to the pharmacy. And I think that's an op like an example of a, a way that we can provide, deliver care and kind of engage people in these less traditional ways using um, the multidisciplinary model that, you know, the framework is kind of there with, with other staff and meeting people where they're at. That's so wonderful. Is Oak Days one of the um, Alameda County hotels that the county purchased, or what exactly is Oak Days? I think so. I, Damon can speak to it. I believe it was like the days in before, and now it's... Oh, it's changed names. Oh, it's one of the safer ground sites. It's actually the one that's been converted now to permanent housing oh, for people okay. who are, you know, honestly, many of them would qualify for skilled nursing facility level of care yeah. who are there but they don't want to go to a skilled nursing facility um, for, you know, a lot of good reasons often. And so, you know, for example, there's a, there's someone there who's receiving home dialysis. Um, it's, it's really intense.
comprehensive levels of care that are being provided there. It's kind of our 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 most. I, I think around the Bay Area, I can't imagine another place that's providing more intensive permanent supportive housing, um, essentially, than this group is. And I would emphasize what what Boner said as well that a lot of folks there really were just not in our system at all before. Like we have this sort of thing about high utilizers, but there's also just this population that's been neglected. And I think at the Oak Days, you have some combination of both those groups of folks. That's wonderful. That's really good. Any other questions or comments for Damon or the doctor? Okay, then, Heather. I just want to really thank Monish before we move oh, on gosh, to this thing yes. for making time to come and join us before you go out on leave. And um, I know the uh, the Quapican board is, you know, we're we're all really jazzed about the Bridge Clinic and really looking forward to partnering with you more uh, moving forward. So thanks for taking the time to come and be with us tonight. Oh, no, thank you. Thank, thank you all you for, so um, for having me. I hope I wasn't rambling too much, but. Uh, Not at all. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you. Okay, um, Heather? Um, All right, on. we're back in action. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Um, I'm just going to rename Mark again. Mark, welcome back. So, yeah, sorry. Okay? Yeah, sorry about that. I, I, I had I had another important call and I had to interrupt my my participation for a quick second there. All right. No problem. Glad to have you back because Next up on our agenda is the approval of the 2022 subrecipient agreement, and of course uh, we need you all for that um, that vote. Um, we've reviewed the subrecipient agreement before, so there's nothing too new here. Um, but this is the official approval of the agreement at this point. Previously, when we talked, we we did. Um, talk about it being a 2022-2023 visit, and I see an error in my memo, so I'm so sorry. I will fix that. Um, the error, the memo still refers to the two-year contract. I thought I had fixed it, and I did in several places, but not in the one line at the bottom. So we are recommending that you approve the 2022 risk recipient agreement, um, and what they will do is they'll do an extension once we get closer to the, the following year. So apologies for not noticing that in the in the written analysis. Um, the agreement is attached and it looks the same as you've seen it before. So there are no changes except for that uh, timeline. So we just need to <clears throat> have a vote on this, correct? Right. So you need a motion to approve <laughs> the yes. CY 2022 subrecipient agreement, and then Brenda can do um, after you get a second. Brenda can do roll call for your for your votes again. Thank you. Is there a motion for the healthcare and um, the uh, subrecipient agreement for 2022? Well, I, um, I this is Mark. I approve that we uh, that we. Uh, um, I, I approve of, of making a motion to approve it. Chairperson oh, Mark, can you just say um, I make a motion to approve if you would like to if you would like to make that first motion? Yeah, um, I like to make a motion to approve it. Perfect. Yep. I'll second that motion. Okay. Thank you. Okay, and then. 
Brenda, if you wouldn't mind doing a roll call and um, chair members can say yes or no, whether or not they agree to approve the motion to approve the subrepient agreement for year 2022. <laughs> Loretta Mellon? Yes. Richard Harvey Jr.? Yes. Lucia Angel? Yes. Neha Banger? Yes. Mark Smith? Uh, yes. The motion pass? Yes. Great. Linda, can you scroll down to, um, yeah, thank you so much. Okay. Um, that was all you, is that all you had, Heather? Well, that was, that was for the subrecipient agreement, and now we just do our standard program report, yeah. which you guys are accustomed to. Um, and yeah. again, it's it's fairly um, brief. Thank you so much, and it's very similar to what you saw um, last month uh, with the appropriate month names this time. So you can see our utilization for January in the mobile health clinic. Um, I did want to talk briefly about our um, what will be coming in our new program report in April. We have a plan to provide some new information that focuses on the health center rather than just on mobile health. And so as you look at the program report that you see now, if you can also consider some things that would be of interest to you, um, we're going to be providing you with a suggested new program report in a couple of months that we're working on. But in the meantime, if you have uh, input that you'd like to provide to us, we would be happy to take it as well. We had quite a jump from um, December, right? From December, it's going up slightly. Um, the main thing that you see the jump in when you're looking at that purple line is our enabling encounters. So this okay. is where the team is seeing um, patients outside of our regular clinic. Um, this is probably accounted for because our team, once again, did provide some well checks. And so while they're providing those well checks, those aren't official um, encounters with us. They're not Alameda Health System encounters, but the uh, mobile health specialists, when they're working with those patients, get to count them as outreach as enabling encounters. Great. Super. You scroll to the next. Um, we are, we just talked a little bit again about working on that flu vaccination process measure and our leadership and advocacy is pretty much the same as what you saw last month. Um, just that we have that little reminder that we are working on both the homeless health center and many other things within ambulatory um, Division at this time. Amy, do you have anything you want to add? Just thinking about that. I don't think so. All right. Thanks. Okay. Let's see. All right, and so I think what's happening next is you guys are going to move into closed session. Um, so I will be uh, creating a space for everybody to join. 
And um, right. no, that's right. We're going to go to closed session for public employee performance evaluation. So, Heather, if you don't mind just moving only the CAB members, and I would go with them. Super. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. 